Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. I'm still in the DMV, DC, Maryland, and Virginia. I'm just gallivanting. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just here. People be like, when are you going back? I'm going. I don't know when. Both my lawyer and my manager have had independent conversations with me. Like, so, like, are you here and we're going to, like, rev up the machine? Or, like, are you going back into the world to just, you know, just be there? And I was like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. This woman asked me the other day, we were at Cafe Riggs. She said, what is your five-year plan? Like, where do you see yourself? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. And she was like, like, you don't have, like, a, like, a big goal? And I was like, "Mm, no. Am Am I supposed to? I've never been one of those five-year plan people. But then she was like, like next year, like, do you have like a, a next year plan? And I was like, I don't know. Like travel wise, technically I do have a calendar, nothing firmly booked to activate the calendar. It would actually require me to get on a plane and go to Ghana. We have to, you know, start the clock, but you know, we're not there yet. Whatever it is, I will be in America, East America for summer, June, July, and August. I want to do the big summer events. I want to do ABFF. I want to do Essence because I haven't been in years at this point. I want to go to the Vineyard in August. Maybe. I don't know. It's next summer. There's a whole lot of life to be lived between now and then. But my friend who was asking me this, like she's a very DMV type woman, very successful, very accomplished, very type A. And so she was like, so wait, like you have like no real plan? And I was like, that's the point. I was one of those people, like I literally lived in the same apartment for 15 years. I would do these big brunches in my house, probably like twice a year. And I mean, twice a year for like 15 years. I loved that I would invite people and everyone knew my address. They would come into the house. They knew which drawer the cutlery was in. They knew which cabin to open to find the ketchup. I liked being predictable and I liked being stable until I didn't. I try to explain to people that instability is its own form of stability, I don't know if that really makes sense. That feeling of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a little bit lost. I'm a little bit uneasy. I'm trying to figure it out. Like it just becomes part of your day. There was a point in my life in which not being structured and not knowing what's next, it would drive me up a wall. And now I'm just used to that feeling. It takes extraordinary shit to rattle me. I really like that about myself. In case you're waiting for the point, there wasn't one. Let's start the episode with some good black news. We need a little joy in our lives. Andre 3000 is releasing an album of new music. It's called New Blue Sun. It is, quote, according to an exclusive interview at NPR, 
a stunning 87-minute mind-bender, minimalist and experimental, tribal and transcendent. One thing it is not, however, is a rap record. No bars, no beats, no sub-bass. Andre doesn't sing on this joint either. What he does do is play the flute. Is this an instrumental album? It is. I love Andre 3000 probably more than I love Usher. Andre 3000 was my first mega celebrity crush where I was like, oh my God, this man is like the holy grail. He is my favorite rapper. I said that since Outkast's first album came out in 94. I love Andre 3K. I love him. My whole inner circle knows how I feel about Andre 3K. Everybody was sending the link around, like in the group chat, individually, like people are texting it to me, DMing it to me. I was so excited and I was like, oh my God, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And then I read the article and I was like, wait, there's no, there's no, there's no rap. There's no, there's, there's no lyrics. It's Andre. I feel like he and I ride the same wavelength of life. So I'm willing to give him and his flutes and windpipe instruments an 87 minute, they say 87, 87 minutes of purely instrumentals. I'm going to give it a chance. Please, Lord, don't let this album be bad. Please let the windpipes inspire something. Andre did this really long interview on NPR. I mean, really long. Like, I read for like 10 minutes and still wasn't done and was like, okay, I need to record the podcast now. Like, it's getting dark. He talks about creating the album. He had three really great songs. He lives in L.A. now. And he reached out to Tyler, the creator, who's also in L.A. And he was like, hey, like, you know, can I come by and play you some music? I would die. That's like Toni Morrison calling me and be like, you want to read something I wrote? What? Yes. So Andre goes over to Tyler, the creator's house. He tells this story and he says, Tyler, the creator is a fan of travel suitcases. Stay with me here. And Andre describes he has a wall. He being Tyler. So Tyler is listening to these three songs that Andre is playing for him. And he says, I've been trying to figure out how to configure these Louis suitcases. And he listens to one of the songs. He says, it sounds like you're chasing a butterfly through a garden. Your music helped me figure out how to arrange the suitcases. So I was like, is this a music to like find yourself to? To find clarity? To interior design? To decorate to? I don't know. Whatever it is, I'm going to listen to it. And because I love him, I'm probably not going to drag it. Because it's Andre. There's a lot of music news this week. Tracy Chapman. I'm also reading this on NPR. It says Tracy Chapman becomes the first black person ever. First black person to win song of the year at the country music awards. She was honored for fast car. Everybody knows fast car. NPR notes that it peaked at number six on the billboard hot 100 chart. When it came out in 1988, the song was nominated for three Grammys and Chapman won best female pop vocal performance, but it won this year. Because singer Luke Combs, I don't know who that is. Oh, I did hear about this. He did a cover of the song in April. And his version peaked at number two on the Hot 100 charts. And it won single of the year. But Tracy Chapman was awarded as the winner of song of the year because she's the original writer of Fast Car. I need to hear this Luke version. Luke Chapman, not Uncle Luke. I realize with black people, you throw out Luke, we automatically think Luther Campbell. My bad. So congratulations to Tracy Chapman. Oh, one more last piece of good black news. I want to talk about Denzel. He has two big, big, big movies coming down the pipeline. One of them is on Netflix. 
Denzel has signed on to play Hannibal, the ancient general from Carthage, in an untitled epic drama that will reteam him with Antoine Fuqua. Antoine Fuqua, Lila Rashawn's husband, who was, you know, he had a little scandal a few years back. His beautiful wife was gracious enough not to leave him. I hope he's treating her much better these days. But Denzel and Antoine Fuqua did training day together. And that was Denzel's Oscar. I don't think he has more than one, does he? Not for a lead, but he definitely won an Oscar for training day. John Logan, who wrote Gladiator, is working on the script for this Hannibal movie. I mentioned that he was like this very infamous black general, right? That took on, I want to say the Romans? The black guy on the elephant? Let's see, how does Deadline describe the movie? Or at least least describe Hannibal. Atop an elephant, Hannibal came over the Alps. Yes, I remember correctly. Came over the Alps and attacked Rome from the north, at the time posing the greatest threat to the Republic. Hannibal was a skilled military tactician, and his military victories are legend. Also, there's a Gladiator 2 coming out, which Denzel is also supposed to be in. Which I was like, wait, what? Ridley Scott, Gladiator 2, set to restart production. Restart production? Okay, I guess it was already happening, evidently. But it's slated for Thanksgiving 2024. What is Denzel going to do in Gladiator 2? I guess we find out next Thanksgiving. I'm very excited about this. You have no idea. You know what else I'm excited about? This isn't even in my notes. I don't expect me to have great details on it. Ridley Scott's Napoleon comes out next week. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with Napoleon. Not like in a praising him kind of way, but just, I don't know, after being in Paris, it's hard not to be. So much of Paris's, I mean, in Paris has a very, very long history, but a lot of like the over the top, super excess, like crazy shit is Napoleon. If you go to the Louvre and you've ever toured the apartments, they're Napoleon's apartments. He used to live in the Louvre. Well, the Louvre used to be a palace. That's a whole separate thing. And then there's another castle right outside Paris, which is where Napoleon was living. He had to step down as emperor, but he lived there for a while. His taste, (laughs) the man loved gold. I mean, he loved gold like Mr. T and Trinidad James loved gold. He was so excessive. He was so over the top. All like four foot 11 of him. I'm taller than Napoleon. But he, you know, much like Hannibal, was a military tactician. I mean, he won a lot of battles, won a lot of wars. Isn't the um the big arc that's in the middle of the circle, wasn't that built for Napoleon? Yeah, I just Googled it. Napoleon ordered the construction of a triumphal arch. I've been saying arc, arch, to glorify the grand army, his army. But yeah, I'm super excited about this movie. I just don't know if I'll be able to see it. I guess my freaking out about this is a sign that I'm going back soon, huh? Kiki, this story has become a saga. I like to remind people, and I've had to several times, because people are like, well, why is she saying this now? Why is she doing this now? Why is she telling all this now? Like, you know, take us out the group chat. Kiki has not made a single statement about domestic violence, about abuse. She has not shared any pictures. She is not posting on Instagram. Kiki filed a restraining order that is public knowledge. The news, the blogs, social media, people are getting access to various parts of the restraining order and are releasing information bit by bit. All of this is coming because she alleges that she was assaulted on November 5th by her child's father and she filed a restraining order to protect herself and their son from the man she alleges attacked her on video twice. It's totally insane, but actually not. 
that this is happening to her. I was having this DM conversation with this woman and she was like, I didn't want to put this in the comments because I know people are very sensitive. But she was like, I just don't understand how someone like Kiki Palmer ends up in this kind of situation. She's bubbly. She's outgoing. She has a huge brand. She has her own money. She has celebrity. She has her own power. She was like, I don't understand how a woman with all that going for her, like she doesn't need to depend on this man financially. In fact, she's the breadwinner. How does she end up in a situation like this? And I was like, you know what? It could happen to anyone. I understand some people don't know. Just do a little Google search and get some basic education. Other people are coming from like a place of judgment. And I'm like, please, instead, can we change this narrative instead of asking, well, why didn't she leave? Like, but why is he hitting her? People are like, I don't mean to victim blame, but, and then proceed to go ahead and victim blame. Part of the reason we don't start there is because a lot of people don't see anything wrong with it. Reading through the comment sections, and I've really got to stop doing this. I say I do it for professional reasons, just so I like understand all sides of an argument. But I was like, for my own mental health, like I really need to stop reading the comment sections on basically anything involving black women in relationships. It will really make you lose faith in humanity. People will see the restraining order. People will see the video from Kiki's mom. They will hear the audio messages. We're going to talk about that in a second. They will see the text from one mother to another. They will know that there's a restraining order. They will know that she filed for sole custody. They will see stills from videos of Kiki's child's father attacking her. And they'll still be like, I don't believe it. It's it's, it's AI. He, she probably attacked him and she pushed him to his limits. And then he snapped. She's just doing this because she wants custody. Women are deceitful that way. There's no accountability. After she wore what she wore to the Usher concert, like, what does she expect? She deserved that shit. Really? Yeah. But the latest developments in this case, they had some more details from the restraining order. That child's father is a whole fool. Apparently, he was jealous of the baby, which is not the first time I've heard that. But she describes an incident from September where she says that the baby daddy became, quote, rough physically with their son while changing his diaper. I have a screenshot here that was posted on the Neighborhood Talk. It says, on December 26, 2023... So less than two months ago, she writes, I was concerned for Leo's safety after Darius became very frustrated with him when Leo was crying while Darius changed his diaper. Darius started getting rough with Leo physically, and I stepped in to make sure Darius would not hurt him. Darius was angry, and it almost became a tug of war with Leo. Darius finally let go, and Leo was not harmed. But as I was holding Leo, trying to comfort him and finish changing his diaper, Darius hit me in the head before storming out of the room. She said, in addition to the physical abuse, she said Darius used to say, quote, disturbing things that caused me to fear for our son's safety with him. He said he understood why male animals in the wild want to eat their children. He also said a man's love for his child is based on if he loves the woman. Nigga, who raised this animal? Well, well, well. So last episode, we talked about Darius has an older brother who played Dro on Insecure. When the news of the restraining order and then also the request for sole custody came through, everyone was talking about it. Big brother, post this scathing tweet. He doesn't use names 
about how someone is like vile and manipulative and then everyone will see. And that's when Mama Palmer uploaded her video calling Big Brother Jackson a fuckboy and was like, I reached out to you a year ago and told you your brother was abusive and your response was, yeah, I used to be like that too. Which I was like, who says that? The story hits Shade Room and he goes in the comments. He denies what Mama Palmer is accusing him of. He said, I never once said that to Sharon, Mama Palmer. He says, not once in my life. I have never been abusive to any of the women I've ever been involved with. I feel like I've never been abusive, period, would have sufficed. But I was like, to any of the women I've ever been involved with, have you been abusive to other women? Have you been abusive to women you were not involved with? Where are the publicists or the lawyers even? So he continues. He says, but Sharon, the world is about to hear your voice, all caps, very soon. And the threats you made to my family. Be well, everyone. I know it's easy to get caught up in this and make no mistake that all of it is very sad. So the audio that's mentioned here, Darius did release it. It is indeed Kiki Palmer's mother's voice. She has claimed it as such. In the very short clip that's played, she drops two MF bombs. She threatens Darius. I will put a bullet in your head, motherfucker. But Darius, I guess, goes home and plays the audio of Mama Palmer threatening to put a bullet in his head. And then his mother contacts Kiki's mother via text and threatens to file a police report because she's threatened her son. To which Mama Palmer texts back. She was like, why are you hitting me up about this childish nonsense? Your son has anger issues. He choked his own sister. Wait, what? For whatever reason, I don't understand. Darius thought it was a good idea to release this. Did you think we would listen to an audio of the mother of a woman who we've seen pictures of her daughter being assaulted and we were going to be outraged that she threatened to kill you? No. What decent mother do you know that wouldn't be ready to kill somebody that attacked their child? I, I don't understand what you wanted us to do with that video. Again, I ask, are there lawyers? Are there publicists? Did these professions cease to exist? Is there some reason that people are not utilizing them? Who is this man's lawyer? Like the same lawyer as Jonathan Majors? What would possess you to release audio of an enraged mother protecting her child? Because that's all I hear. What would possess you to release text where your mother sounds like a damn bird? You're going to hit up another woman talking about, I can't believe you threatened my child. You goddamn right she threatened to put a bullet in your son's head. Be lucky she ain't follow through on it. I was talking about Mama Palmer on social media and I was like, I don't see the problem. I see some proper parenting going on here. Mama Palmer says she reached out to Big Brother over a year ago. That means she's been aware for over a year that her daughter was being assaulted. Mama Palmer gave context to the video. She did an interview after this. She was like, there was two minutes of conversation before this. She said, my daughter called me and told me this man had broke into her house. She said, I was in fear for my daughter's life. I was telling this man to leave the house and he refused. She was like, so yes, yes. I threatened to put a bullet in his head. Yes. It sounds like good parenting to me. Mama's at her wit's end. Where are the fathers in all this? Because Mama Palmer does have a husband. Kiki does have a living father. Baby daddy and big brother, they do have a father. Their parents do appear to be married. The father does appear to be living. Also, I don't know nothing about Father Jackson. Where are these boys learning this behavior? Because there's pictures all over the internet of Darius assaulting Kiki. 
And then Kiki's mother is accusing him of assaulting his own sister, to which the mother didn't even respond to. And then Big Brother, Kiki's mama says that he told her that, yeah, he used to beat women too. He later came back and denied that. And But he's also got his own weird custody battle going on right now too. What is going on in the Jackson household? What has going on in the Jackson household? When I was talking to my mother about this story, she was like, I don't understand how this went on so long. Where's the father? She ain't got no brother. She ain't got no cousins. She ain't got no uncle. She ain't got no male friend. Why has nobody beat this man's ass already? I don't know. Can this man even go in public in Black America right now? Can he leave his house? Because I've never met Kiki a day in my life. And I was like, on sight. Last but not least, no, we've been waiting for this for quite some time. I had to give folks a chance to catch up because I talked about Sheila Johnson's book. I told you I read the whole thing in 24 hours. Like after I posted the review on social media, people were like, oh my God, I'm going to get the book. And then I talked about it on here and people were like, don't recap it yet. I'm going to get the book. An amazing number of people were like, okay, I'm going to do the first 100 pages. I'm going to do chapters one through six. I've got the audio. Folks sat down intending to just like read a portion A whole bunch of people just went straight through. They were like, I can't believe what I'm reading. Me either. If you have no idea what we're talking about, if you haven't been tuning into social media, you haven't been tuning into previous episodes, you've just decided to join us at this juncture. We are about to recap the first six chapters, the first 98, I think, pages of Sheila Johnson's book. The book is called Walk Through Fire, a memoir of love, loss, and triumph. If you do not want spoilers for this book, I would suggest that you stop listening expeditiously. It is time for you to pause the podcast and come back at a later time. Not this episode, because we're going to recap the book and then we're going to be done with this episode. You still here? I'll give you time to go away. It's okay. I'll wait. Okay. My overall takeaway from the first 90 pages of this book, I have never read a book and used the N-word so many times as I was reading. Bob Johnson is an unbelievable man. The only man I think that has more audacity than Bob Johnson is her own daddy. With much respect to Miss Sheila, her daddy wasn't shit. She all but says it in the book. I'm getting ahead of myself though. We're going to start with the prologue. Page one, because that's when I started underlining things and circling things and fiercely scribbling in the margins. This is how the book starts. Excellent start, by the way. It's very gripping. It really brings you into the story. She walks into the front door of her house And she hears her brother shouting. He says, Sheila, come here. Something's wrong with mom. Sheila is a high school student. She's just finished a shift mopping floors. She walks into the kitchen. Her mother, she describes, is curled up on the floor, wailing in pain. Her eyes are glassy and blank. And her body shakes with what seems like convulsions. She's trying to figure out what's going on with her mom. But she does have an inkling it might be related to her father. It's page two of the book. Three weeks prior, she walked in on an argument between her parents. She said her mother's eyes were red. She'd clearly been crying. She said her father, quote, he just stood there with a blank face like he hadn't a care in the world. She says, quote, after 18 years of marriage, after raising two children and buying a home and achieving what certainly looked like the American dream, My father had decided he wanted something different from our life. As it turned out, that something different was running off with the nurse he'd met at work. Nigga, what? That's like the theme of this book. It's like Miss Sheila 
will tell you a story that's like the craziest shit you've ever heard. And you're like, oh my God, it can't get worse than this, except it does. She said her father up and left them. And she's like, he didn't just like leave and was like, okay, I'm going to pay alimony. I'm going to pay child support. She's like, no, it's 1965. Those things didn't exist. And, or her father was still going to continue to father his children who were still minors. Her father was like, nah, I'm out. He went to live with the nurse and she only saw her father one time after that in her entire lifetime. And she says up until that point, she'd very much been a daddy's girl. Her father was a neurosurgeon. Her mother was an accountant. They're staunchly middle-class black. There's a point in the book where she talks about she took an interest in violin and her family spent 15000 American USD dollars in the 1960s on this violin. I didn't run the numbers on what the equivalent of $15,000 in like, say, 1963, about when she would have got this violin. As a matter of fact, I just looked it up. 146510 That's the kind of money that is existing in this household. So she says her father leaves without his salary. Her mother couldn't even afford to feed them for a week. So that's how Miss Sheila ends up mopping floors at JCPenney after school. She went and got a job to help take care of her family. Um, But back to her mother on the floor. They call an ambulance. Her mother's taken to the hospital where she stays for several days to be treated for a nervous breakdown. This story about the mother's nervous breakdown comes up multiple times throughout the book. It's a very defining moment for Miss Sheila's life. But in the moment of it happening, this is what she writes. She says, mom loves a man who has wounded her without care or concern. And I have seen it nearly destroy her. No man is worth this, I think. She calls her father, who, you know, had been like a doting, present, active, participating father up until three weeks ago where he walks out on the family. So she calls him and it was like, hey, we got a situation because mom is in the hospital Me and my 13-year-old brother, like, we're at the house and it's just us because, you know, you're with the nurse and now mom's in the hospital. Like, what we's going to do? And her father was like, that's not my problem. Really, it is. These are your two kids. Like, you don't don't give a fuck at all? No. This is page five of the book. And I wrote, what the fuck, five times. I just wrote it over and over and over again because my mind can't process that. But after Sheila Johnson's father so coldly dismisses his wife of 18 years, and his two minor children, Sheila vows, I will never be in the position my mother has found herself in. Dependent on a man for her sense of self-worth, for her financial security, for support of her children. She looks at her mother's life and she decides, like, that'll never be me. And then it becomes her. A good chunk of this book is very much how she set herself on the path to become her mother. So now we're into chapter one. All that was just the prologue. So we talk about her growing up in the Rust Belt of Pennsylvania. Her father, I mentioned before, he's a neurosurgeon, but even though he's a neurosurgeon, he can only get jobs in certain places, mostly federal contracts. And for the most part, they don't give him long-term contracts. So the family is constantly moving around. And obviously, they're not paying him the same thing that they would pay white neurosurgeons. So Sheila moves around to a bunch of different schools. And one of them, she's passing for white. Remember Nella Larson's book got turned into a movie called Passing? I want to say it ran on Netflix. 
And the main character, I can't remember the actress. Was it Tessa? The whole film is in black and white, but black people watched the film and was like, you're telling me they passed for white, but I'm looking at them and they're very so obviously black to me. We had a whole national conversation about how black people are very attuned to everything that makes us black because of the one drop rule. White people just don't pay as much attention to it. The same thing with Sheila Johnson. Like I'm reading this book. She was like, the better school was for white people. And she was like, my dad was really light. Like he was passing color. Her father was like, well, I want you to go to a better school. So for second grade, she went to the white school and she was like, as long as I kept my hair straight, nobody knew the difference. I read this on page 11. And I had to turn back and look at the front of the book. And I was like, wait, I mean, she is really light, but she not like white light. She just light light. Those cheekbones, the shape of the eyes, the shape of the face even. I was like, that's black. But I guess not to white people because she went to school and passed for the whole year. She talks about picking up the violin. She took to it immediately. There's this interesting tidbit on page 16. Remember she said she had this pretty utopian life. But she tells this story. I want to say she was in her room. She was laying on the bed, listening to music, reading a book or something. And her dad said, you know, dinner's ready. And so she was going to climb down from the top bunk. And her dad was like, just jump. I'll catch you. She didn't think anything of it because like, what is my father going to do? Like not catch me? Like he's my dad. Like I trust him completely. And she said she jumped into her father's arms and he intentionally didn't catch her, which I was like, who does that? Her daddy. She writes, I hit the floor hard, confused with the wind knocked out of me. Her father said, that's a lesson. Don't trust nobody. Huh? She said, I wonder now if he had already started messing around with that nurse And whether this was his way of trying to prepare me for heartbreak that was coming. At the time, I decided to just push away my hurt feelings and go on like nothing had happened. This was the first time I did that, but it was far from the last time. Sheila Johnson wrote this book in collaboration with Lisa Dickey, who is a really amazing writer. I'm not familiar with her other work outside of this. I can tell you as a writer and as an author, this ain't her first foray. I'm not familiar with her, but she's a hell of a storyteller. She does this thing that's very common with TV. You know how like, okay, you know how we watched, oh, what was that movie? With Idris Elba on Apple. Hijack? Snowfall did a really good job with it too. The end of every episode, the last, I would say 90 seconds, something completely batshit happens. And you're like, oh my God. I have to keep tuning into this show because something crazy keeps happening and I have to know what happens next. What's the show we're supposed to be discussing this week that we didn't discuss? I'll get to it. I promise. I promise. Black Cake on Hulu. At the end of every episode, something batshit happens and you're like, oh my God, Lisa Dickey as a writer does that very, very well. Throughout the book, there's always this sense of impending doom that the worst is yet to come and you keep flipping the pages to see like, what exactly is she alluding to? Lisa Dickey is always dangling this little carrot that compels you to keep turning the page. How bad could it be? Oh my God, it gets worse than this? What's worse from this? Turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. It's very intentional and it's why so many of us read this book straight through or read it within 24 hours, 48 hours. We can't put it down because Lisa is dangling this carrot. Miss Sheila talks about getting this really great mentor, Susan Starrett, um, who stays with her I want to say she's still there. She talks about how Susan stepped in after her father left and became a great support system for her, um, especially while her mother is falling apart. 
my perception of why her mother fell apart was because she's overwhelmed. But what will I do? How will I make it? But Sheila says her mother internalized it much deeper than that. She says, quote, from the moment my father left, she felt like a failure. She was paralyzed by guilt that she hadn't been able to keep her family together. What kind of wife can't hold on to her man? What kind of mother lets the father of her children walk out their lives? I was like, baby, like you were internalizing his shit and carrying it as your own. Like he did crazy shit. His crazy shit is on him. It's not on you. Like he left. That's his action. It's not on you. Her mother also has a very deep trauma in her history, which exacerbates her feelings of unworthiness. That term keeps coming up, right? And abandonment. So Miss Sheila's mother was adopted or so she believed. She found out later in life that her parents who told her she was adopted actually never legally officially adopted her. She never got over that deception and she internalized it as like, I've been abandoned by my birth family and I'm a foster kid and I go into this new situation with people who treat me really good and they tell me they've adopted me, but then I find out later that they kept me as a foster kid and not as an official member of their family because foster kids, you get paid, you get money from the state. Adopted kids, the financial faucet is cut off. Which I was like, yeah, that's 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 some trauma. We remember we talked about earlier how traumas repeat themselves. Even if you try to actively put yourself on a path for it not to, this is another example of it. Like she's facing the same trauma with her husband that she faced with her parents, and her daughter does literally the exact same thing. Generational trauma in a nutshell. She takes on her mother's trauma with her own parents, and then her mother's trauma with her father, and then she takes that on to her own marriage of 33 years. She went through hell, Bob. Hell. We'll get there though. She also, I think this is notable too. She says when her father walked out, she says her mom instantly lost her status in the black community. She said there would be no more dinners, no more social gatherings. She was a wreck, not only unfit for company, but also spending most of her time scrambling to make ends meet. Losing the husband and also losing the social status will also play into Miss Sheila's decision to stay with Bob all that time. Lord. So while her mom is trying to pull herself together, mentor Susan steps in to guide Sheila. Her mentor Susan helps her get into the University of Illinois, which is a blessing and a curse. We're at the top of page 33. This is where Bob first appears, other than the prologue. So she goes to the University of Illinois. She's a young freshman. She goes to school early for this one-week orientation, and she says each freshman is randomly paired with a junior who will introduce them to campus life. She has the luck of the draw, or the unluck of the draw, to get paired with a guy named Robert Johnson, a.k.a. Bob, a.k.a. the terrorist. She says her first impression of Bob, she said, I don't remember my first impression of Bob, probably because nothing about him particularly stood out. He was short, about five foot seven, and darker skinned than me. I didn't think he was particularly handsome, though he had a nice smile. Lady, why you talk to this man? She explains. She says, what I do remember is from the moment he introduced himself, he never really left my side. He stuck to me like glue. Bob decided he liked me, and that was that. He was going to make me his girl. Sheila had one relationship prior to this with this guy named Tom. 
they were attending different colleges in different states. And they decided that it didn't make sense to try to keep up a relationship with the distance between them, especially at the age. But Tom comes up a few times throughout the book. She says, when Bob Johnson set his sights on me, I felt flattered. He was three years older than me, though just two years ahead in school. I was like, did Bob have a late birthday? Did Bob get held back? She also notes that he was a Kappa, so he has a little bit of social clout on campus. She said when she was hanging out with Bob, they would be in this group of smart, ambitious Black students at this very white university. And she said it was the first time I felt like part of an elite slice of Black society. Remember, her mother got kicked out when she got divorced. With Bob, Sheila gets a little bit of the sense of normalcy in her life that she had before her father ran off with the nurse. She also knows that hanging out with Bob, especially after the void of her father leaving and the abandonment of, you know, he just up and left and never to be seen again, except once years later. She said, quote, it felt good to have a man who wanted to be with me all the time. But Bob rather quickly starts to show his ass. Like we met Bob on page 33 and by page 36, Sheila's writing about in the middle of my freshman year. So they'd only known each other a few months. She writes, I discovered that one of my favorite record albums had gone missing. I think it was the Broadway cast recording of West Side Story. There was no reason for me to suspect that he'd given it to another woman, but that's what happened. I can't remember how I found out, but when I approached Bob about it, he made me feel like a fool for even asking. He was testing me, trying to see if he could get away with it. And he did, of course, because I either believed him or chose to forgive him. Maybe a little of both. Do you know the kind of motherfucker you have to be to go through somebody's record collection and not even steal like something random that nobody listens to anymore, but to steal their favorite album and then give it to another woman? That's up there with the guy that stole that lady's ugly shoes after the one night stand and then gave the used shoes to his girlfriend and she took a picture and posted it online. I wonder if she stayed with him after that. This is the first time I wrote nigga what about Bob. Obviously, if you've read the book along with me, you know it's not the last. But I was like, he did what? I was like, that's a red flag right there. She's young. She's got a void because of her dad. She's got some daddy issues. And Bob, I don't know what the term for Bob is. Like, is this narcissism? Is this like sociopath? There's some kind of disorder. There's something wrong. This man is a full-on villain. He's a terrorist. But like, who does that? Bob. That's who. Bob. Bob does. She goes on to talk about her experience in the, the school of music. She said she had a very difficult transition when she got to college. She said for her school, she was the best in her high school. She made best all state. But then she gets to college and she's competing with the best of the best that her university has taken from all over the country. She also notes that she's the only black undergraduate in the entire school of music. And then notes further out of the entire population of the University of Illinois. She doesn't say how many people were actually there, but she says it's only one percent black. But she does make friends in her music department. She talks about becoming the first black cheerleader at the University of Illinois, which I was like, really? I only mentioned that detail because she was at school on a music scholarship. And then she also joins the cheerleading squad. And then she gets informed that because she joined the cheerleading squad, she would be kicked out of the music school and stripped of her scholarship. 
This also happened to her in high school. They didn't think she was serious about music because she was also a cheerleader. She said this decision was not only ridiculous, it was unfair and most likely, most likely racially motivated. She says, because I can't imagine the university kicking a white cheerleader out of her major. The administration even made some comment that I might hurt my fingers while cheerleading as if that were a valid reason to completely derail my studies. This is another case where she had a mentor in an advocate at college. There's a man named Dan Perino. He looks out for her and he gets the decision from the university reversed. Bob the villain is at it again. She said she's on the cheerleading squad. She's having a really fun time. She said, I started getting some attention from the other guys. I would imagine some of those other men are athletes. Bob, at that point, had graduated because he was two years ahead of her. She said, Bob got word that she was dating and having fun. And she said, only a few weeks into my junior year, which would put Bob only a few weeks into his time as a graduate student at Princeton, he took a leave of absence from his Princeton program and came hurrying back to Illinois. She said, there's several ways you can look at that decision. Are there? Are there, Miss Sheila? Are there? She says, some people might see it as a romantic gesture, a man coming back to be with a woman he loves. Some might see it as resulting from a combination of factors. Maybe Bob was struggling with his classes or feeling lonely or missing not just me, but his fraternity brothers too. Maybe Bob wasn't quite ready to grow up yet and this was his way of extending his college experience. There's another way to look at it. This would also happen to be the way that I see it. She says, quote, maybe Bob was a jealous man and he did not want me dating anyone else. But instead of talking with me about it, maybe coming to some sort of understanding about what would happen during the two years we would spend apart, he straight up walked away from his Ivy League graduate program and came back to quote and unquote claim me. He needed to control the situation and this was how he knew he could do it. He came back. He confronted her about their relationship and the dates that she'd been on with other people. And she says, quote, Bob just kept getting more and more worked up. He said, let me tell you something, Sheila. You are going to be with me. She said, I started to say something back and in a flash, Bob threw his fist into the wall behind me, punching a hole into it. This nigga was crazy from get-go. He already stole your favorite record and gave it to another woman. Now this man is dropping out of Princeton and punching holes in the wall. How many red flags we gonna get, baby girl? In fairness, she's only 19. You think you know everything. You don't know shit. She says, um, after Bob threw the fist in the wall, she says, quote, I was stunned and honestly a little bit scared. He hadn't swung at me. Man, he threw his fist into the wall behind you. That's not swinging at you? That's me. That's my take. She says, the violence of the act shocked me, yet I also felt something else. Look at how much he cares about me. Since the day my father had walked out, I had felt unloved, never good enough. But here was the proof that I was worth fighting for. Ma'am, ma'am. I, I wrote nigga what two times in the margins. What? What? Remember how with Kiki in the Usher situation when she wore the dress with her ass out when it was like 100 degrees in Vegas and her baby daddy, who we've now established, is complete fucking bonkers? Remember how when that happened, people were like, he's just trying to protect her. 
time, so many women were like flag on the play, red flag on the play. Something ain't right. He's too controlling. He's publicly embarrassing her. Why is he trying to tell her what to wear? Red flags, red flags. And people were like, no, that's just a man. And this is what he said. He was like, I'm a man with standards. All this backwards, crazy, insane logic in order to justify a man doing some crazy shit. This a clear red flag. That's Sheila right here. But again, because her father did this crazy shit, he left this wide open void in her life. This someone like Bob can come in and even with all the crazy shit that he does, he fills that void for her. So she puts up with the crazy shit in order to fill the void that her father's fuckery has left in her life. <sighs> the cycles, the cycles. Sheila said, I should have been alarmed by what he had done. She said, instead, I felt flattered. Ma'am, it's after this that Bob proposes. She said, I don't remember how Bob proposed or where we were or anything about it, really. I'm sure he just announced that we that we needed to go ahead and do it, then handed me a ring. It's possible that he made more of a romantic gesture and I've just blocked it out. Miss Sheila has blocked out her whole engagement. She's like, maybe it happened. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. She remembers every other detail of all the trifling shit Bob did. I wonder if she keeps journals. Hmm. She said they got married midway through her junior year, which like, girl, what? You're a baby. You're 19 years old. She says her mentor advocate, Susan, she'd been telling Susan about the stuff that was going on with Bob. She didn't have a lot of friends, but she did talk, but she did speak candidly with Susan. She said she told Susan she was marrying Bob and Susan said flat out, Sheila, please don't marry him. But at this point, Sheila says, I love Bob and I believe he loved me based on what? Because he kept telling me he did. She literally wrote that. I was like, so he didn't show you. He just said it and punched holes in the wall and stole your albums. Okay. And dropped out of Princeton. Okay. Her old mother didn't want her to marry Bob. Remember the boyfriend that we talked about from high school? The guy that she really, really liked, but they went to separate schools. Her mom called the ex and was like, you have to do something. Go down to her college. Stop the wedding. That's a move of desperation. That's up there with Kiki's mom telling old boy she put a bullet in his head. Trying to protect your child by any means possible. You called her ex-boyfriend and was like, please help. Stop. And she still married him. She and Bob got married. She said they went to a nearby hotel to spend their first night together as a married couple. She said we had only just checked in when Bob said, I've got something to do. And then he left. To this day, she don't know where Bob was. She was like, I was alone in a motel on her wedding night. She said, as I sat there on that bed, shame spread through me like hot poison under my skin. How could this be? How could this man who had told me so many times that he loved me, who had put a fist through the wall at the thought of losing me, abandon me on our wedding night? Was he with another woman? You think? Had he gone to a bar? No. Go with option A. I didn't know and I couldn't bear to think about it because the only thing that mattered, this is fair, wherever you went, it doesn't really matter. The only thing that really mattered was that he chosen not to be here with me. I began to cry. The big heaving sobs of someone who knows she's made a terrible mistake, but can't see a way to take it back. If you don't carry yourself down to some city clerk and get this shit annulled. Lawyers. Didn't we talk about this? Lawyers. Where are the lawyers? She said my mother had collapsed on the kitchen floor after my father walked out 
And I had vowed in that moment that I would never, ever put myself in that position. Now, just four years later, here I was, abandoned by my husband, just as my mother had been abandoned by hers. I called my mother and she drove right over. She was beyond furious. You are not staying in this marriage, she told me. Mom, I said, my voice breaking. I love him. I can't leave him. Girl. I literally wrote, girl, 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 in the margins. What in the Ricky Lake logic is she talking about? Sheila continues further down on the page. She says, it felt more important to save my marriage. It, girl, it ain't been 24 hours yet. Save yourself. It felt more important to save my marriage than to respect myself. Girl, girl, oh, girl, girl, tell us what's been happening. If I had to live in denial to keep my relationship going, then that is what I would do, Sheila, honey. Miss Sheila, you ain't have no aunties. You couldn't call Susan. Susan could have solved this for you. Susan would have taken you down to the city clerk herself. She would have drove you. You could have got this shit annulled, baby. They say when something goes wrong in a man's life, he'll blame others. But when something goes wrong in a woman's life, she'll blame herself. I blame myself for Bob's behavior. Just like her mother had blamed herself when Miss Sheila's father had walked out. She writes, I internalized the idea that I had displeased him or I wasn't good enough. And so I made up my mind to be better. I had to persevere to win him back. Yo, fuck Bob. <laughs> Yo, fuck Bob. Since I started talking about Sheila Johnson's book, maybe like a week and a half ago, the number of people who reached out to me to tell me about their encounters with Bob Johnson, this man was a hoe of epic proportions. And apparently he's still at it. His go-to, I've heard this from multiple women. He likes very light-skinned, very long-haired black women. He likes NBA holding corporate types. Law degrees are fine too. He invites you to lunch at some very swanky place. The common thread from women who've shared their stories with me is he'll tell you about the different properties that he owns in different parts of the country. He'll invite you to a property to spend the weekend with him. Part of his M.O. is telling you that he's made a lot of women millionaires and you could be one too. I was like, this is your pimp game? Really? One of my really good friends was telling me her Bob Johnson story. She said she's around 26, 27 when it happened. She said that she'd met him prior in a business capacity. I can't give you any more details than that. She was like, if you tell this story, no identifying details. I keep my word. So she said when he reached out to her, she was like, oh my God, Bob Johnson wants to do business with me. She said he called her on her work line. He invited her to dinner at some really swanky place. The restaurant is a DC institution. If I named it and you're from here, you'd know exactly where I was talking about. She said I had on some bummy work clothes. She was like, I didn't look like money. And she was like, I'm going to meet with like billion dollar Bob Johnson. Like I want to look like I have my shit together. Like I did when I first met him. And she said she showed up for the dinner in her sheath dress and her blazer. And Bob said something to her like, why are you all covered up? Because she really thought she was there for business. And then he propositions her, invites her down. I think she said North Carolina. She was like, in my head, I'm like, ick, this man is old enough to be my dad. Oh my God. She says, that's when Bob said to her, you know, I've made a lot of women millionaires and I could make you one too. And so she was like, oh my God. So she's like, I excuse myself to go to the bathroom. And she was like, yo, this is too much for me. I'll figure out how to make a million on my own and did. So she said she went home that night and she called her mom and she was like, oh my God, like, do you know who Bob Johnson is? She was like, everyone knows who Bob Johnson is. Why? And so she was like, oh my God, he propositioned me. And like, he said this thing about like, you know, I make all these women millionaires, blah, blah, blah. 
And I was just so disgusted and I can't believe her own mother was like, you told him no? And she was like, yes, of course I told him no. Oh my God, what are you saying? And she was like, well, you fuck plenty of people for free. I was like, whoa, 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 mom. I told my own mother this story and she said, well, did her mother lie? Mom, mom. And no, her mother didn't lie. That's not the point though. I don't know if we're going to make it to page 100. We are now just at page 50 and our discussion is going way longer than I expected. I'm going to get to page 50. That's the top of chapter four. And then we're going to have to come back to Miss Sheila. I'm so, so, so sorry. But look at what we've covered in only 50 pages. Jesus. She said shortly after she and Bob got married, especially because he wasn't a student, because he dropped out of Princeton, he was no longer protected from the draft. So he gets drafted for Vietnam. She said Bob was supposed to be shipped off to Southeast Asia. She called her mentor at the university and told him what was happening. And he said the Army Reserves had to have a certain percentage of minorities within their ranks. So if Bob signed up for the reserves, he would probably not get shipped off to Asia. So that's what they did. He got assigned to the reserves and he ended up going to Missouri for basic training. And then he comes back to Illinois and he's only required to serve on weekends. She says shortly after Bob gets back, she says, quote, the letters started coming. They were from a woman in Missouri addressed to Robert Johnson. Who was she and why was she writing to my husband? I asked Bob what was going on and he just looked at me. Same shit her father used to do. Then he chuckled. He said, oh, those letters aren't for me. There was another guy with that same name in my unit. She must have gotten us mixed up. This made no sense, of course. Even if there was another Robert Johnson in his unit, how would the woman have gotten our address? I said, are you sure? He said, oh yeah, they're for that other Bob Johnson. Then he told me to give him whatever letters came in, saying he'd make sure they got to the right guy. I'll take care of it, he said, with an absolutely straight face. Yo, Bob is the original Juan Dixon. Like, what the hell is this? Yo, if somebody had written this story as a screenplay and they were like, so yeah, so this young woman gets involved in this relationship and he does all of this shit. Like he steals her records. He punches a hole in the wall. He abandons her on their wedding night. He goes to basic training and starts having an affair, gives the woman the home address where he lives with his wife. And when the letters start coming, he's like, oh no, there's someone else named Bob Johnson. You'd be like, it's too unrealistic. No one will believe this is possible. And yet, and yet, this is Miss Sheila's story. Remember we said earlier, like, it always gets worse? Bob. Bob outdoes himself. Miss Sheila says, I had one more semester of school left. But now that Bob was back from basic training, he decided he'd had enough of Illinois. He told her, he said, let's go ahead to Princeton. I've stuck around here long enough. She says, Bob, I'm on scholarship. I'm not going anywhere until I graduate. I knew that if I left the university early to follow Bob to the East Coast, I'd never get my degree. She says, reluctantly, he agreed to stay until I finished. But Bob, Bob could never be one-upped. She said, because I had dared to push back and even deny him what he wanted, he clapped back with one more move to reestablish control. He told his wife, we'll leave as soon as you finish your last exam. There's no sense waiting around for graduation. Sir, sir, if her school year is ending, that kind of means the year is ending at Princeton as well. 
even if you're doing summer school and you're eager to get back, like there's a break between where spring semester ends and summer semester begins. It's not like spring semester ends on Friday and then the summer sessions begin on Monday. That's not how it works. I too have a master's degree. Miss Sheila's commencement ceremony was scheduled for a couple weeks after her final exams. And she says, of course, I wanted to attend my college graduation and my mother wanted to as well. But Bob was absolutely adamant. He says, quote, I came back here for you. I sacrificed two years. You can sacrifice that. The hell I can. The hell I can. Ain't nobody asked your ass to come back, Bob. You chose to do that. You chose to take a leave of absence from Princeton. Nobody asked you to come back. Miss Sheila was down here dating. She was a cheerleader. She was skinning and grinning and meeting folks and having a good old time. Your ass decided to drop out of Princeton. And your ass decided not to come home on your wedding night. Sir, sir, you could stick around for this lady graduation, but didn't. He told Miss Sheila, he said, you could sacrifice that. And she said, so I did. As soon as I finished my exams, we packed up our car and lit out of Illinois. My mother cried when I told her. She was upset for me, but his behavior also rubbed like sandpaper on the places where she was still raw from my father's leaving. I couldn't bear to make her so unhappy. I couldn't understand why Bob was incapable of letting me enjoy the graduation day I had earned. But he was my husband, and I wanted him to be happy. So off we went to Princeton to begin our new life together. Somebody should fight Bob on sight. I don't care if he's in his 80s. Somebody got to fight that man. He got to take one punch, like on the GP of it all. This is crazy. This is crazy. She was like, I don't understand why Bob was incapable of letting me enjoy the graduation day. It's not that he was incapable. He wanted to make you feel small and did. Like all of this shit is intentional. It's not like, oh, Bob didn't know what he was doing. Bob doesn't have the emotional capacity. Bob just didn't get it. He attended his own graduation. He knew what a big deal it was. His family made a big deal about it, I'm sure. He knows the importance of a college graduation. He does. I really wish that Miss Sheila's mama had had the tenacity of Mama Palmer and cursed Bob clear the fuck out, threatened to put a bullet in his head. Maybe Sheila would have had a different life. She talks about that at the end of the book, and we'll talk about that section when we get there. I hope we move through the book faster, but like, I've been talking forever and we're only on page 50. And I feel like I've skipped so much just to focus on the highlights. We'll do the next 50 pages on Friday. I thought we could get to the end of chapter six. We could get to page 100. I was clearly more ambitious than I needed to be. My bad. We'll we'll return to our story of Miss Sheila and the co-founder of BET, her husband of 33 years, a.k.a. the villain, a.k.a. the emotional terrorist. We'll be back on Friday, y'all. Okay. Bye.